Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for this uh, hour of worship. We ask, O Lord, that by your Spirit you'll guide us, guide me, my tongue, uh, guide this audience, these people that have gathered here, that their ears would be opened, their hearts would be receptive. Because this ought not to be a time in which we put our minds in neutral, but it should truly be a time in which we look forward to having your word expounded in such a way that we rejoice in who we are in Jesus Christ. And all, all too often, Lord, we're distracted by all those things that plague us on the outside world, and it puts a mute button on our understanding and even our hearing when we come to worship you. God, break through that with your mighty arm. And even as uh, Cliff prayed earlier, unless you come by the Spirit, then we are wasting our time. But with great anticipation by faith, we understand that these are your people. And uh, you are truly interested in our growth and our understanding, uh, in our acceptance with our heart so that we may worship you properly. And so I pray that whatever I bring to these folks this morning will be a blessing, but it would also be that which you speak, not I. So I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue in expounding another parable. I've done uh, several so far. I don't know how many parables that I'm going to engage in. But you know, this particular parable is one of those that my Sunday school students would understand when I use my color coding. When I teach them, they understand when I put up green, blue, and black on the blackboard, that when I'm teaching something in the green, they know that this is okay. They're going to get it. It's going to be easy. Okay. It's not a, it's a no-brainer. And then the blue, you're going to have to do some digging. And the black one, you're going to have to scratch your head more than once. And as you all witnessed, you know, when Kid is going through that section in Hebrews, he's talking about Melchizedek. Um, I scratched my head a couple of times. Probably the rest of you did too. Well, this particular parable is not of that nature. It's back in the green. But there, I've got to give you a caution. I truly have to give you a caution to this. Because actually, the subject matter of this parable is repentance. Now, I'm pretty sure that most all of you folks are Christians. So repentance is uh, 101. It's the beginning. It's foundational. It's something that all Christians should actually have a vocabulary in and a pretty good understanding of what repentance is. So there's probably a temptation to slip the old gear shift into neutral. That would be a mistake because 
even though I gave the title of this sermon, Cause and Effect, the subtitle to it is Amazing Grace. And as I kind of unpack this passage in Luke 13, it'd be really good for you to look at the unbelievable grace that God sheds to each one of his children in arriving at this thing called repentance. Because without his grace, you're not going to do it. It's going to be false. It's going to be going through the motions without the authenticity of a broken heart. So I want you to get that right at the beginning. And as usual in uh, the parables, there's always a context. And if you just uh, read the parable itself, uh, you probably won't get the full gist of it. And so I want to read something to you that you should be uh, keeping in the back of your mind as I go through Luke 13, 1 through 9. And it's back in chapter 12, just a little bit of it. I could go on with it, but it's actually going to set the, the backdrop for this particular parable. And in verse 35, it says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the household known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. I want that to be a backdrop to this parable. Because it's a warning. It's actually, Christians, I want you to be aware. I want you to be on guard. I don't want you to be sleeping. And probably he had in his own mind what he was about to engage in in Jerusalem in a few days. Because this has been his journey. He's constantly pushing towards that climax in his ministry where he hangs on the cross. He knows it. And even at that, as an aside, I just want to take a few seconds for us to contemplate this. Right now, we are plagued with all kinds of garbage out there. I mean, it's in our minds. It's pressing us. And you know what happens when that happens? You're distracted to the point where you're not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing 100%. 100%. Because your mind is distracted. Fear. It grips you, okay? Concern. All these things are pressing in on you. Here's Jesus. This is the model of what we ought to be. In a few days, he's going to go to that thing. He already knows it's going to be disaster. It's going to be terrible. And there he is taking out time, and every chance he gets, he's instructing his disciples, he is instructing the audience with love and tenderness, encouraging them to understand the ramifications of the kingdom of God. What a glorious Savior we have. What a glorious Savior. I mean, separating all of that stuff that's going to happen so that he, he concerns himself to the here and now, the immediate, and he pours his heart out on, on the audience. What a blessed Savior. Well, in chapter 13, 
we have the parable of the fig tree. And the, the parable of the fig tree is introduced to us by a group of men that are coming down from Jerusalem. And uh, they're returning from Jerusalem as Jesus is going towards Jerusalem with that crowd. They're coming down from it. And they have a chief concern. It's heavy on their heart. We read here in verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told, uh, told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is a situation in which they were either eyewitnesses or they heard that there was a tragedy that happened in the temple as the Galileans. And probably in their mind they said, well, Jesus uh, came from Galilee. He has an association with the Galileans. So if we bring this and present it to him, we would like to understand his take on this. We have heard of his miracles. We've heard of his wisdom. We've heard the type of preaching that he has. We want to know what he thinks about this unbelievable tragedy. In our mind, probably we don't have the same weight as the Jews at that time. This was Passover. These Galileans had traveled a long, a long distance to offer sacrifices. And Pilate was the one that instructed his goons to come in, break in to that area where they're sacrificing and slaughter them. And the blood ran with the blood that was running from their sacrifices that they had just offered. Now, to a Jew, that would have been bad news bears. That would have been bad. Now, to us, it may not have the same impact, but that was an absolute affront to them. <clears throat> now, these, these people that are confronting Jesus, I know what they're doing. Actually, uh, they're asking the question immediately, why, uh, why did this happen? Did they sin? Did they have greater sin on them that caused them to suffer such tragedy? And uh, you have to pause for a second and think about the situations that even occur in our lifetime. Isn't it true that something, when something happens that's catastrophic, a tragedy that happens, the mind starts to race? What, what caused this? What caused this? Was this person in sin that caused this? <clears throat> Actually, people ask those questions out of fear and curiosity. Fear because as they view something that's tragic like that, they think on their own terms, what if it happened to me? Is there a possibility that it's going to happen to me? Because it's very tragic. And they, these people that are traveling from Jerusalem, they probably were thinking to themselves, we could have been in that temple at the same time. They want an answer. Why? Why do these things happen like this? But there's also curiosity. Because people always notice this. There's some that tragedy hits and there's others that tragedy doesn't hit. It just doesn't hit. Well, it's been the natural propensity of man right from the beginning to associate tragedy with sin, cause and effect. And if you look th back through the Old Testament, that can be supported. Blessings and curses, right? If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do this, if you disobey, this will happen to you. It's in the mindset of the Jewish culture in which if you're obedient and walking with God, good things will happen. Now, you know, as, as well as I do, that doesn't always pan out. There are things that happen regardless 
of your performance or your obedience. And I'm going to go into that a little bit later. But in Job is a classic case in which that was the mindset of those three individuals that were trying to witness to, to Job, trying to figure out all of the ins and outs of why he was suffering so much. One of the verses in Job 4-7, uh, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And it's also supported in in the New Testament as well. If you look at it, there's that same pattern of thinking. In Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, you will reap what you sow. And there there are some calamities historically. I mean, God paints the picture for us, doesn't he? In Samuel, about David. Okay, David sinned, and there was a result. There was a consequence of that sin that's easily um, identified with the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah in his two sons and what happened after that. I took you through that in some of the other uh, passages that I, I preached on before. And it is true, just logically, a bad lifestyle. You can probably expect that there's going to be trouble down the line, a bad lifestyle. But then we have to remember something else about tragedy, that it's not always connected to sin. I'll give you a for instance here that Jesus uses as well. But in John chapter 9, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but, the, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, and so there's, a, there's instances where it's not sin that's connected with the tragedy whatsoever. It's for another reason. In fact, I would suggest that there's oftentimes a lot of different reasons why tragedy occurs. What happens when a tsunami, a tsunami hits or a tornado hits? It covers the land. Is it the individual sins that get knocked over that's the cause of the tornado? No, I don't think so. It's the fact that we live in a fallen world, don't we? We live in a fallen world, and oftentimes we pay the consequences for the bentness of the earth, the tragedy of what happens because of the original sin. But to identify it with individual sins oftentimes is a mistake. So certainly there has to be a caution that's built in here for us, the observers of people that are going through tragedy. We ought not to immediately, in a knee-jerk style, jump to the conclusion that, you know something? Something's wrong with that person. I think he's sinful. I think that he's suffering in these ways because something is upside down in his life. We should be careful of that. In fact, notice Jesus' response. He not only responds with a blockbuster response, but then he moves on to an example. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? His answer is no. Categorically, no. That that is not the reason why these tragedies occurred to them. But then he shifts gears, and I love this. Because he actually doesn't answer them per se. He doesn't say, I know why this happened. 
But then he's looking at the heart of the people that are gathering around them. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he moves on to another example to sure up his answer to them. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in, in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. <clears throat> now, actually, that's a stunning answer, isn't it? Because it's avoiding the, the thing that they're asking, but it was is going right for the heart of the issue. These people confronting Jesus, why? Why do these things happen? Well, the biggest thing was, what is your condition? What what is your lifestyle? What is your attitudes towards what I have been presenting? Actually, what I have been presenting for the last three years to the Jews. What is your attitude? What is your, your heartbeat towards this? Now, when we stop and think about it, he's talking about repentance. And so we must... A pause and ask for a definition. But I suspect the definition is easy enough to ascertain. It's not actually identifying the full definition that's a problem. It's the living out the reality of repentance that's the real problem. I think if I took a poll in, of any of you folks in this room, uh, my students, whatever it is, if I asked you what repentance is, there'll be a pretty sharp answer in response you pretty much know what it is. I'm going to flush out some of the edges in repentance. But truly, the problem with repentance is we're not living according to that which we repented from. We're always thumbing our nose at it. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. We've got to keep in mind that these parables are all their kingdom parables. They're actually spoken in the context of preparation for the identification of who is in the kingdom of God, who is being ushered into the kingdom. If you kind of close your eyes for a second and you think of a huge wall, and then right in the middle of the wall there's huge uh, iron doors, and the iron doors can be opened or remain shut. And they truly remain shut for all of those that would want to go in if they have not repented. If they have never repented, those doors are closed for the entrance into the kingdom of God, as well as faith. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. But no, make no mistake about it. Repentance is not a method to earn our salvation. It's not a method to earn our salvation. But it is an, a true indication with actual repentance that the spirit of the living God has invaded your heart, softened your heart, and caused you then to repent because you have noticed the gap between Christ our Lord and yourself. But also your lifestyle. You're actually viewing long and long distance here the difference between Adam life, which is death, you're looking at that and say, okay, that's death. And then you're looking to Christ who is life and you're shirking that you're saying, I want nothing to do with, with death. I want to put it aside. I want to, I want to throw it away from me. 
That happens to be a crushing of the heart with humility because you recognize your participation in a lifestyle that has everything to do with death, nothing to do with life. Jesus came to free us from our sin, which must involve our turning away from sin. And when we talk about repentance, there's the idea of repenting in a one-time stance. You do it. This is the turning away. It's denying that which you, you came from. And actually, it's engaging in that which Christ proclaims to us. Life itself says, yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. That's, that's, that's what's drawing my heart into the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. And you're saying no to Satan and everything that he stands for. No to everything that Adam stands for. That's that turning away. And believe me, if anyone here has gone through this cycle and has never rubbed into that, they've never engaged in a turning away, a breaking, a rending of the heart, you need to question your identity in Christ. Because God will have his way, and by the Spirit, he does bend our will towards his through repentance, a mortification of sin. There is that question. In fact, there is a classic example that God gives us in the Old Testament. The propensity for us to make lip service over repentance and then return to something that's so vile. And remember, Israel came out of Egypt, and it was not too long before they were moaning, complaining, and kicking themselves. Oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt. Oh, I wish we could go back. Well, excuse me. Egypt was full of bondage. It wasn't paradise. It wasn't pleasant. Now, I know that it was rough in the wilderness, but God's promises, in fact, God's presence was there. So why would they want to revert back to a place where God's presence wasn't? Why would they do that? And oftentimes, isn't it true when we read through the Old Testament, and especially those instances around Moses and the Exodus and all that was happening in Egypt, you scratch your head and say, how dumb can those people be? How stupid. All those miracles that were happening, and they're still acting like a bunch of coneheads. But I've got to tell you, if you examine your life for even a moment, there is a propensity in our own lives to revert back to the old nature time and time again. Thus, there is an importance for ongoing repentance. Not just a one-time thing, but an ongoing repentance. Because as we live this life, we are confronted with the fact that we do live in two different worlds, don't we? We have been raised with Christ. Okay, We have died and we've been raised with Christ. But yet, <clears throat> in the back of our mind, in our souls, there's lurks. And Cliff was bringing it up today. There's that warfare that's going on within us constantly that we need to pause and compare it with the way Jesus Christ thinks. And it has to bring us to our repentance, a constant repentance. That's what's so necessary about this message that our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing to these people. And he's going to give a parable to kind of clarify what he's saying. Because it's harsh, isn't it? You know, when Jesus is saying that to right to your faces, you guys, unless you repent, 
You can't go through that iron door. It's not going to happen. Thomas Watson has an explanation about repentance that I thought it kind of caught my eye here. Because it is true, there's a true repentance and there's a false repentance. And just think for even one second, Judas. You know, when Judas was caught out and he felt bad, okay? In fact, he, went, he, he, he wept, he wept bitterly. But then he went out and hung himself. It was a false repentance. It wasn't true. Watson says, true repentance is when we weep for sin. Do you get that? When we weep for sin. I remember my time where I hit the brick wall. And that brick wall was, I saw what I did to Jesus in my heart. And it confused me. I said, how can that even be? How can it even be that my Lord would would die for me? They would actually go through that kind of suffering for me. That hurt real bad. Amazing grace, isn't it? Amazing grace. He says, true repentance is when we weep for sin. When we weep for it, as it is a defiling thing. It blots the image of God, stains the virginity of the soul as, as, is, as it is an act of unkindness. It is a kicking against the breast that gives us milk. But how easy it is it to prevaricate in this? Many think they repent when it is not the offense, but the penalty troubles them. Not the treason, but the bloody acts. They think they repent when they shed a few tears. But, but, but though this ice begins to melt a little, it freezes again. They go on still in sin. Others forsake sin, but still they retain the love of it in their hearts. Like the snake that casts the coat, but keeps the sting. There is as much difference between false and true tears as between channel water and spring water. They have this way about vocabulary that always draws me in. But it's really cute, isn't it? But it is true. In the muddy water, which one would you prefer? Clear water or muddy water? Well, false, false repentance is, is atrocious to God. He wants a broken heart that's with sincerity, that says, I have done everything wrong against my master. Please forgive me. Now, sometimes when we stumble over the fact that people do suffer, and yes, we live in a troubled world, we have actually ignored the fact that from the fall, and this is what's so amazing to me, God had every right to just end the whole thing. Now, I know as we sit here, we're thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm not that bad. That would have been a tragedy. Yes, we are that bad. Without the blood of Christ, we are that bad. We are separated from the living God in such a way that God cannot see us. He cannot even entertain the thought of us because of the spotlessness of him. Absolute purity of God. There has to be a remedy. That remedy is in Jesus Christ. But he had every right to say, after Adam sinned, be gone. I want this whole thing to be taken away from me. I think therein causes all kinds of problems with our estimation 
of sin itself. We think for some reason God owes us something, which he doesn't. He doesn't owe us one thing. It's all by grace, all by grace that we're saved. Every motion is by grace. We are sinners in need of grace, and repentance is necessary. And in order to have repentance, true repentance, guess what it needs? A heart transplant. So you can see right away when Christ says, and unless you repent, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You know what he's actually saying is, that is the evidence that the spirit of the living God has actually changed that heart of stone and it's revived it and it's caused it to be living in me. And so if you're repenting that way, naturally you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're going to be drawn in. God's mercy alone preserves us from his wrath. And praise God that he does that in each individual life in a timely fashion that we can embrace him with all our whole heart. And, and indeed, others have, have commented on this concerning this thing called repentance. It's not partial, it's with the whole heart. It's with the whole mind. It's actually bending the will to coincide with that which we have actually arrived at in our mind that we need to actually turn our ways to Christ, turn our ways away from Adam. Well, then he enters into the parable on the fig tree, and it's very small. It's not to be confused with some of the other parables that he uses. Um, the fig tree is an example. This one is specific, and it's geared towards this whole idea of repentance. Actually, the fruit of repentance when he talks about the fig tree. He says, he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, look for three years now, and I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Very succinct, very clear. But I think if we take a little pause again and think about the audience, we can see immediately that he's, te he's teaching Jews. He's speaking to Jewish audience. And consequently, how they're interpreting even the fig tree and vineyard, they're thinking back, aha, He's talking about the Jews. Because that's a representation of the Jews, isn't it? And that's, that has been their example throughout. And I, I'm going to read you a section in Isaiah to support that. <clears throat> in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, I hope I've got the right one here. Yes. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning this vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but he yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its, its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. <clears throat> For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That's just one example of how we reference just those terms, fig tree and vineyard, specifically to the house of Israel. <clears throat> There's also references to that in Hosea. If you're taking notes, be Hosea 9 and 10 or Jeremiah 8 and 13, Micah 7 and 1, just to tell you that throughout the Old Testament, those references are mighty available. God expected to find fruit of repentance, but he found none. In fact, if you read through the parable again, you notice that the, the uh, man that owns a vineyard, he, he came and he noticed lush foliage of the trees in the vineyard. But then upon closer identification of that particular tree, he found no fruit upon it. Now there's, he was searching. He went in search of that which he expected that, that tree to, to pr- produce. <clears throat> well, this brings to mind actually what Israel is about in the, in the first place. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and actually sharing miracle after miracle with the Jewish audience in particular for three years. This is at the end. This is at the close of his ministry. And no repentance has actually occurred within uh, the Jewish community. And so what he is doing is the first part of this section in chapter 13 is rather harsh. But then he breaks off to give this parable to actually say that, but there is mercy. I will give you another extended period of time to repent. And that's what this parable is concerning. God's mercy. And isn't it true that after even the crucifixion, there was an extended time for the extended invitation to repent Judah. Okay, would you come to me please after the crucifixion? And many did. But in AD 70, it put a cap on it. Actually, there was judgment upon it because all of Israel did not repent. They did not come to Christ. Well, you have to ask yourself then, if this was just reserved for the Jews, what about the Gentiles? Or even in our time, what about uh, the Christians that gather together? Is repentance, in, in, is the same weight of repentance given to us before we can enter into the kingdom of God? And my answer is yes. And I'll refer to uh, Luke 24, first of all. In Luke 24, it says, very, very succinctly, 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, 
and he goes on. So this is actually something that is supposed to be observed, something that's to be entered into among all of God's children to repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. But also in Romans 11, it says something to those that have been grafted in that I think we should be paying attention to. 13, and their attitude, their very attitude of this. Having trouble turning my pages. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is concerning the Jews. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even then, if you do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them, them in again. What a blessing to the Gentiles, but a caution as well. Not to be haughty, not to take it for granted, but actually to follow the pattern in which Jesus Christ set down before them. Engage in the participation of union with Christ through repentance and through faith, not with haughtiness, but with all humility. And truly, it was a blessing for the Gentiles, wasn't it? One new man was grafted into this tree. The Jews actually, through unbelief, they were cut off. They were sheared off. Were they repenting? They had nothing to do with repentance. Actually, they rejected Christ, and consequently, they paid the price. God is looking uh, for fruit, not foliage. And if you enter into the vineyard and you see the trees all looking the same thing, but then you identify that there's no fruit on the tree, why would you keep that tree in the vineyard? You must remove it. But the vine dresser with passion and compassion says, can we do this one more year and I'll take special precautions to help this tree get back on its feet. Matthew 3, 7 says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. It's very sobering. There's always those in the community of religion that assume that they're actually participants in the kingdom of God. But Jesus calls a spade a spade, looks them right in the face, says, you brood of vipers. Now, to us, that may be rather offensive. We think that Jesus, meek and mild, why would he respond in in such a way? Because everything that they demonstrated was of a false nature. It wasn't with a genuine, broken heart in seeking out Jesus Christ. He says, what I want to see from you is the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. Now, I know because I I started off this whole thing with saying that this subject in, in and by itself is in the green. It's elementary. It's foundational to the Christian understanding of our union with God. But isn't it true that oftentimes, even as mature Christians, we stumble over this understanding of what repentance is? We stumble over it. You know, grace, uh, gifts can be faked. There can be people that, you know, flood a congregation and, and they speak well, they pray well, they appear well. It's the very thing that Cliff was t- talking about before. And by all appearances, they're secure in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know something? That which separates us from those that are going to be outside of that wall, that big iron gate, is true repentance with true faith, which it was born of the Spirit, not born of ourselves. Sometimes we think we can put our pants on all by ourselves, our strength. But it's God himself that sends the Spirit of the living Christ into our hearts that so convicts us that the genuine repentance then is that, that power that opens up that gate. Make no mistake, it's not repentance in and by itself. That's a highway to salvation. It's Jesus Christ himself. It's all centered in the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus, as usual, he always holds out an opportunity for all those people that are gathered around him to repent one more day. But there is a day when it's cut off. Now, that's the point that I truly believe that a lot of Christians think they just keep cruising as though there's going to be another day. There's going to be another day. I want to read this from Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. And it will uh, actually give credence to the fact that there is a day in which mercy is not extended anymore. It's cut off. It's done. It's over. And we need to be aware of that. In fact, I started it off right at the beginning of the sermon and saying that Jesus is saying, beware, be on your guard, be prepared. For what? For those things. When Jesus returns, when judgment comes, and it could be this day when you die, that's when you will meet the Lord. He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. He had already passed out of those regions. And we don't know what miracles he was doing there. It's not recorded for us. But apparently he was doing that witness that even this, this group of people are witnessing that day that he's preaching. And they gave him the thumbs down. They said, we don't want anything to do with you. And Jesus' response to that is, woe to you cities. I was there and you said, no, I want nothing to do with you. And we should actually be aware of the fact that God is altogether merciful and long-suffering. But you know, there is a day when it's cut, isn't it? And certainly, if you have not engaged in union with Christ and you die this day, it has been cut, hasn't it? There's no more returning. In the grave, you don't return and say, time out, I want to repent. I want to recant my ugly lifestyle. It's over. Today is the day to close with Christ. Now, I'm, I'm preaching to Christians, so for you Christians, you say, I, I got it, it's, it's taken care of, okay? But I don't know if you've, uh, you've noticed this, but... God, in his tender mercy, he keeps doing this in the midnight watches when he actually inserts within our minds those things that we need to reconcile in our minds that are past tense. I've experienced these. And the reason for him doing that is not to beat us over the head and say, I just want to crush you. I want to push you down into the dirt. No, 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 no. The reason why he does that is actually his whole intention for the Christian, is to cause us to be exactly like him, to mirror Jesus Christ. We have to think like Jesus. We actually died and are raised, and actually we see, or we're seated at the right hand of God. Consequently, those things that actually plague us, causing us to think like Adam, need to be reckoned with, don't they? And sometimes these night watches, I've just experienced some myself. They're from a long time ago. They're, they're done. They're gone. They're past. But God would have us to think through those things and reckon that we were wrong in our assessment of the situation, our actions, our thoughts, and to beg forgiveness. Ask God for forgiveness. This whole subject of repentance, though it's elementary, it's essential to the life in the kingdom of God. And even as the last parable that I gave to you about greed and fear, Jesus is saying, you know something? Those things don't have any part in my kingdom. I want you to be aware of them. I want you to be sensitive to them. Now, even this day as I have preached the sermon, I want you to do an inventory in your own mind. I want you to think through your relationship with Christ. If there has never been a day where tears haven't actually fallen, and it doesn't have to be visible on your face, but that rending, the breaking of the heart, where you say, wow, wow, this is incredible. 
how bad, how incredibly separated I have been from Jesus Christ. His intention is that we are joined back together with him in such a way that we start thinking, we start mirroring everything that Jesus is about. It's not checking boxes. It's actually living in Jesus Christ in such a way that we, we reflect his glory to one another and to the outside world. You know, Cliff himself, he was talking about, uh, you, know, you know, open the curtain a little bit. In, in, your, in your room, in your bedroom, open the curtain a little bit. Get to view what you're actually like, okay? It's scary, it's spooky, isn't it? God is asking us to be whole all the way through in reflecting his glory in our home and in our church. Now, if that doesn't cause you pause to repent, I don't know it will, because it does me. There's a gap between that which I should be and that, that which I truly am. There's a gap. Now, for those of us that have entered into this process of repentance, but still play footsie with God, and still love sin, still entertain sin, and still think that there's another day to repent, but you're still going to engage in with your, your whole heart sin, I say stop. Stop. You're living a lie. Because it's not part of the kingdom of God. Nor will you be in the kingdom of God with that attitude. It's not going to happen. Repent. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together. I pray that your voice was heard, not mine. I know in preparing this sermon, I heard your voice. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes I want to crawl in a hole. But God, I just love you because you are full of grace. You're full of tenderness. You're full of love. And your intent for us, for these people that are sitting here, is you want them to be united to your son in such a way that we can't tell the difference. What a glorious thing. So whatever it takes, we ask God, be gentle But help us, O Lord, to understand it's for our good and your glory, whatever you take us through. And we do pray, Lord, that uh, if there's censoriousness in our hearts towards fellow believers and their tragedies, that you would forgive us and cause us uh, to slow down and think as you think. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.